recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 25th, 2015. Before we begin, I would like to wish everybody a successful time with their families, speaking the truth with love, and convincing them not to celebrate the Jewish merchandising holiday, but to learn that Christian identity is the only valid Christianity and the only valid worldview for our race. Good luck. That's how we should be spending Christmas. Just this past week, two members... of our, (coughs) excuse me, just this past week, two members of our extended family of friends and listeners had lost spouses, (coughs) and I've just lost my voice trying to say that. (coughs) Our prayers and our deepest sympathies are with them. We also have some dear friends who are sick, and our prayers are with them constantly. We pray for their well-being and recovery, but of course we also understand that the will of Yahweh our God is not always what we as men desire. So we honor him whether our prayers prevail or not. We grieve upon the passing of a loved one, and we should. Of course, we shall miss them, but as knowing Christians, we also have a sure hope that the loss is no loss at all, but is rather only a temporary separation. As we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, now if Christ is proclaimed that from of the dead he has been raised. How do some among you say that there is not a restoration of the dead? Then if there is not a restoration of the dead, neither has Christ been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is empty, and empty or vain is your faith. Then we are also found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified concerning God that he raises the anointed, which he does not raise, if indeed then the dead are not raised. Indeed, if the dead are not raised, neither has Christ been raised. But if Christ has not been raised, empty is your faith, and you are still in your sins." And then those that have been dying in Christ have been destroyed. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, we are the most pitiable of all mankind. And I must interject that even the pagans had always believed that the spirit of a man survived the physical body. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruit of those who are sleeping. Indeed, 
since death is through a man. A reference to Adam. Restoration of the dead is also through a man. A reference to Christ. Just as in Adam all die, then in that manner, in Christ shall all be produced alive. When I first began to study Christianity, after being introduced to Christian identity, I thought long and hard for many months, comparing in my mind the materialist worldview of life and death to the transcendental worldview expressed in Scripture. As I progressed through reading the Bible, cover to cover, for the first time, I encountered the book of Ecclesiastes, and I realized that the failure of the materialist worldview was addressed 3,000 years ago by Solomon. That book was written with a purposefully cynical attitude because the author, in his wisdom, wanted to relate to us that there is no hope without our God. And in turn, if there is a God, then indeed we have hope. I then came to realize that all is indeed vanity, unless there be a God. And since both the wonders of creation and the marvels of prophecy had the signature of our God written all over them, then all is not vain. And the promises of Christianity must be true. Now, I have no doubt at all that the confidence expressed by Paul of Tarsus is indeed true. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. With this, we hope to encourage our brethren. In Numbers chapter 23, from the words which Yahweh had made Balaam to utter, we read in verse 10, Who can count the dust of Jacob and the number of the, and number of the fourth part of Israel? Let me, which would be Balaam, let me die the death of the righteous and let my last end be like his. There is no shame in death, for the righteous. So for this reason, also, this evening we shall present two sermons by Bertrand Compare, which are titled, With Healing in His Wings, and A Reward for the Righteous. We shall offer criticism wherever it may be due. There isn't too much here. And shall also seek to embellish these sermons with some of our own comments where we think it is expedient to do so. The source material here was prepared some years ago by Clifton Emmerheiser, who had added a few of his own notes, and we shall share those as well.
with Healing in His Wings by Bertrand Compare. Surely all of you have heard of the divine healing of various diseases. Some of you may doubt that it has really occurred. You think that it was just the imaginary healing of an imaginary disease. I can assure you that I personally know of many cases of very real diseases which were healed far more quickly than the best of physicians could accomplish it. One who had never seen the city of Chicago might doubt that it exists. A person who has been there knows it is real. So it is with divine healing. We who have seen sicknesses healed by Yahweh know this is real. Possibly some of you have hoped for divine healing of your own sicknesses, but have not received it. You have wondered why you don't get the healing. I shall try to answer that question, I meaning Bertrand Compare, of course, and to show you how you may be healed. You know Yahweh can heal. You know he does heal but you don't know how or why. First, let's find out why there is sickness in the world. Yahweh gave us a code of laws set out in the first five books of the Bible. These laws covered all phases of life and civilization. They were not concerned only with your morality, though Yahweh always has required that you try to live a good life. These laws covered every phase of life that can affect our well-being. There were political laws to keep us free, economic laws to keep us prosperous, agricultural laws to keep our land productive and our crops nourishing. Then there were dietary laws to keep us strong and healthy, and religious laws to keep us true to the one true God, Yahweh. Yahweh has given us all good things, even our very lives. Then, the shortest laws of all, the moral laws, to keep our personal conduct such that Yahweh could stand to associate with us. He promised us good government, long life, and good health when we obeyed the laws. Here we must interject that there were indeed political laws to keep us free. So long as by free, we mean that we should be subject to God alone. We are created by our God. There is no such thing as freedom by the will of man. That is an illusion man creates in his own self-deception. We are created by our God, and therefore we are not our own. If we are not created by our God, then we are bastards and exist in violation of his creation, to be removed at some future date. Returning to Bertrand Compare. We have been taught to see many of our troubles as a punishment sent upon us by Yahweh for some of our sins. This hasn't given us a true picture. We visualize it in terms of the parent of a small child, running after it, catching it, and giving it a spanking. This is a punishment which would not have come 
if the parent had not actively inflicted it. This is a mistaken view, and Compre is not saying that we shouldn't chastise our children. We surely should. What he's saying is that God's chastisement of us doesn't really work in that manner. And for the most part, we esteem him to be correct. He goes on and he says, all of Yahweh's laws are natural, and the consequences of disobedience occur automatically. You can't disobey even one of these laws. You either obey it the easy way and reap the blessing, or you take the hard way and don't obey it and pay the penalty. For example, you can't disobey the law of gravity. You ride down the elevator from the 10th floor, obeying the law of gravity, the easy, voluntary way. But if you jump out of the 10th floor window, you still obey the law of gravity. But this time, it is the hard way, with the penalty. Now, there are instances of active punishment on the part of Yahweh, where Ahab was told that none of his sons would survive, and Yahweh told his appointed successor to go kill the sons of Ahab, to kill everyone of the house of Ahab that pisses against the wall. That's a, one example in Scripture of the active chastisement by Yahweh of those who are disobedient. And it happens. And there are other examples in Scripture besides that. The um, statements which Yahweh made to King David about the sword always being against his house because he took the wife of Uriah and had Uriah killed in the battlefield. David made the circumstances for Uriah to die. And Yahweh told David that he would be actively punished for that. Yet there are, and Compare is correct, there are many cases where the consequences of our sin are our natural punishment for that sin. There's no doubt. But it's not always that way. Compare says similarly, Yahweh's laws stated, in the Bible, are the great truths which reveal that there is only one way to get peace and prosperity, good health, etc. A refusal to do these things must necessarily and automatically lose what you can't gain in any but the right way. And here we must add that there is another level of abstraction to our suffering, which Compare has not yet taken into account. We don't know if he took it into account in any of his other papers. We suspect that he did, but he didn't do it here. Often, when seemingly righteous men, and I say seemingly because we really don't know our brother, we can esteem a brother to be a righteous man by his actions, and, and his conduct, that's the best we can do. We're only men. We don't know everything of one another. Sometimes 
you find out after the fact that so-and-so, a pillar of the community, did such-and-such, a very dirty deed, and you're shocked. So we can't call our brother righteous, but we can testify that he is seemingly righteous and in good standing with God and a man of good conduct. Likewise, we shouldn't label him a sinner without direct evidence of two witnesses either. So seemingly, very often when seemingly righteous men are sick, it may not specifically be for their own sin that they suffer, but for the sins of the nation as a whole. That this is true is clear in Deuteronomy chapter 28 where Yahweh had given the children of Israel the curses that would come upon them due to their national disobedience. And it says, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of the law that are written in this book, that thou mayest fear this glorious and fearful name, Yahweh thy God, then Yahweh will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues, and of long continuance, and sore sickness of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Also, every sickness and every plague, which is not written in the book of this law, them will Yahweh bring upon me until thou be destroyed, and ye shall be left few in number, whereas you were as the stars of heaven for multitude, because thou wouldest not obey the voice of Yahweh thy God. In another place in that same chapter, in those same curses of disobedience, Yahweh says that strangers would take your sons and your daughters and you wouldn't be able to lift a hand and do anything about it. So for your sins, your daughter is going to marry a nigger or a Mexican. For your sins, your son is going to run off with a Chinese woman. Well, if you want to call her a woman, a Chinese female, perhaps. So did the daughter or the son have any particular sin for which they were punished? No. The judgment is a punishment against the nation. Quite often we get sick, not for anything that we ourselves did, but there's sickness in the nation, the plagues of Egypt, because the nation as a whole is suffering. So if you get sick... Don't let it be a guilt trip on yourself. If you feel you've done nothing wrong, you pray for healing. That doesn't mean that your prayer is going to be answered. We would pray with you if we know that you're an upright Christian. We would be happy to. But it's our national punishment to suffer these plagues. Later in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 21, Yahweh instructs the prophet to speak 
in much the same manner. And the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith Yahweh, Behold, I am against thee, and will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, and will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of the sheath against all flesh from the south to the north that all flesh may know that I, Yahweh, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath. It shall not return any more. So we see that when the nation is facing the judgment of God, the righteous suffer along with the wicked. When we see that happening, we should know that the nation is facing the judgment of God. Compare continues by saying, Many of you have been taught that since you are now Christians, you aren't under the law anymore, but under grace. This has been greatly misunderstood. The laws of Yahweh were given to us here, here in this life on earth, to govern our conduct here, not in heaven. They are the means by which we can have the good things of this life. Take, for example, the dietary laws. One of these forbids us to eat animals which have died of disease. I don't care how good a Christian you may be. Even if you were the, well, I don't know about this, but Compray, I guess, had to make some sort of analogy. Even if you were the Archbishop of Canterbury himself, it would still be true that if you found the carcass of the cow that had died of hoof-and-mouth disease and you took some of the meat and ate it, you would get sick. Yes, I know, you wouldn't lose your eternal salvation, but you certainly would lose your present health by violating this law of Yahweh's. Yahweh wouldn't run after you and beat you with a stick. The penalty would be automatic, the same as in the case of other violations of Yahweh's laws. And here we see Bertrand Hopper explain that Christians will not lose their eternal salvation if they violate Yahweh's law, but they will suffer in this life for those violations of his law. When we do sin, we repent and pray, hoping to escape the consequences of our sin. The salvation of our Adamic spirit is another matter entirely. Compare continues. Yahweh told us how to receive all the benefits this life can give. He promised us among these benefits good health if we obeyed him. Deuteronomy Chapter 7, verses 12 and 15, tells us, Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that Yahweh thy God shall keep unto thee 
the covenant and the mercy which he swore unto thy fathers. And Yahweh thy God will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knowest upon thee, but will lay them upon those that hate thee. Exodus 23.25 records, And ye shall serve Yahweh thy God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water, and I will take sickness away from the midst of thee. The blessing comes as the automatic consequences of obedience to Yahweh. Now, as we have illustrated, there are consequences for national disobedience, which transcend the behavior of the individual. And even the righteous can be cut off on account of judgment against the wickedness of the nation as a whole. And that must be kept in mind, as we've read from Ezekiel. Compare continues, as we have already cited from Deuteronomy. On the other hand, Yahweh warned that if we scorned his commandments, we would suffer many penalties, among them being sickness. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 58 through 61 warns us, if thou wilt not observe to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that thou mayest reverence this glorious and fearful name, Yahweh thy God, then Yahweh will make thy plagues wonderful, and the plagues of thy seed. What did the children do? Even before they sinned, they would be sick because of the sin of the parents. This is national punishment. Even great plagues and of long continuance, and sore sickness of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of. So those must have been pretty horrendous diseases when Egypt was smitten before the Exodus. And they shall cleave unto thee. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law, them will Yahweh bring upon thee. This will come by the automatic process by which disobedience produces its own consequences. And we would say that that is partially true, but not all the time, as we have exhibited. Someone may say, but this is from the Old Testament. That was all done away with. No, it wasn't. Yahshua said in Matthew 5.17, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4 reminds us, Whosoever committeth sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. You recognize it is a sin to violate the seventh commandment, that thou shalt not commit adultery. It is also a sin to violate the agricultural and dietary laws, thereby giving the people food, which has lost much of the wholesome qualities which Yahweh intended it should have. If you kept all the law, what sin could you commit? We often say, 
the wages of sin is death. But we forget that the wages of sin is also the immediate step of sickness. Psalm 107, verses 17 through 20 states, both the problem and its remedy. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, are afflicted. Their soul abhors all manner of meat, and they draw near unto the gates of death. Then they cry unto Yahweh in their trouble, and he saves them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction. Psalm chapter 30 verse 2 affirms this. Yahweh my God, I cried unto thee, and thou hast healed me. There is no doubt that there are many instances in Scripture of the miraculous healing of people with horrible diseases. Can it still happen? Yes, we believe that it can. Should it happen in every instance? Will Yahweh answer every prayer, even from the most righteous of men? As we have already stated, often the righteous are taken out of the way, along with the punishment of the wicked, and along with the punishment of the nation for its wickedness. Consider different dynamics. Some things the individual may have been able to control and some things that the individual can't because we all appear to have self-will. But eventually, the will of Yahweh has predetermined the course which every one of us must face, the trials that we must face. And we can't get around that. It's how we face those trials that should be important to us, as we hopefully shall find here. Compré, in reference to Psalm, says, The most serious diseases have been healed this way. 2 Kings, chapter 20, tells us, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto death. And the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, came to him and said unto him, Thus saith Yahweh, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt die and not live. And Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed unto Yahweh, saying, I beseech thee, O Yahweh, remember now how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Now, of course, the words had to be true because Yahweh heard them. And it came to pass, before Isaiah was gone, out into the middle court, that a word of Yahweh came unto him, saying, Turn again, and tell Hezekiah, the captain of my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the God of David thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will heal thee. On the third day, thou shalt go up into the house of Yahweh, and I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And Comparate continues by saying, Remember, the power of Yahweh is limitless. Many people in our own day have been brought back from the brink of death by the power of Yahweh, just as Hezekiah was healed. 
Some of you must be wondering what we are doing in the Old Testament all this time. Does this mean that Christianity is not the answer, and we must seek righteousness under the law? No, I don't mean that at all. In the first place, we have been looking for the cause of sickness. We have seen that it is one of the consequences of sin. Sin brings it on. We shall have sickness until we find the remedy, not for the result, but for the cause, sin. We have already discovered that we aren't able to keep all the laws perfectly. Therefore, we must look for another answer. And Paul tells the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, even though it's a passage very poorly translated in the King James and all other versions, I guess I will be bold enough to say that, Paul tells them that many of them are sick and many of them are dying for not distinguishing the body of Yahweh, referring to those spots in their feasts of charity. Because we cannot keep all of the laws perfectly, we pray for mercy that Yahweh our God steer the consequences of our sin away from us. When there are other factors involved, such as the general punishment of our community or our nation, or even other factors unknown to us, our prayers may not prevail, but we hope to gain a better understanding once we are with our Maker, and we shall. The fact that all of these laws, which Compare discussed, still have efficacy under the New Covenant is indeed evident in many places in Scripture. One of those places is in Revelation chapter 9, where after the sixth angel sounds its trumpet, many men die. We read of the consequences, and the rest of the men, which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. So they, the way we interpret Revelation chapter 9, they fought off the Turks, the conquest of the Muslims, the locusts out of the desert, the Arabs as well, for hundreds of years, and they would still not repent. They still didn't get it, that these attacks against Christendom were happening because Christians were doing something wrong. They gloried in themselves when they won the battles which they did. And they continued to do things wrong. So the Revelation tells us they would continue to suffer. 
There are some who would quote certain passages of Ezekiel and take them out of context to claim that we should no longer suffer from the sins of our fathers. Yet today, parents get their children vaccinated, and that is a form of sorcery. Now, after five or six generations of vaccinating our children, cancer is a plague, and many good people are stricken by it. It could strike any one of us tomorrow because we were vaccinated 30, 40, 50 years ago. The same can be said of things like water fluoridation, which also causes many illnesses amongst our people. If we examine the food laws of God, and if you see what these practices actually are, if you see those things that you're putting in your bloodstream from vaccinations, Modern sorcery forces, or has forced, most of us to be in violation of those laws. If you don't eat it, don't put it into your bloodstream. We should expect to have the plagues of Egypt upon us, and we as a people shall not escape the consequences. We're finished with Bertrand Comparé's presentation of this sermon. Clifton Emmerheiser added only one note as an addendum to the sermon, and I remember why he added it, because at the time he was preparing these messages for electronic publication, he was also debating with others, over the, certain others, over the reasons why Christians should keep the food laws. So Clifton wrote the following two and a half paragraphs. I'm going to repeat them without adding too much to them, if I add anything. I would like to add, meaning Clifton would like to add, just one more comment to Compare's presentation here. Most well-intending Christians point to Acts chapter 10, verses 10 to 16, to support their assertion for the consumption of unclean food, such as swine, where Peter had a vision which says, and he became very hungry and would have eaten. But while they made ready, he fell into a trance, meaning the servants downstairs were preparing a meal, and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him, as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth, and wild beasts, and creeping things, and fowls of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. And this line here proves that the food laws were still being practiced three or four years after the Passion of the Christ. But Peter said, Not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spoke unto him again the second time, What God has cleansed, call not thou common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. And Clifton says, Three times makes it very important. We would say that Peter was very stiff-necked and had to have everything three times in order to get it. You will notice, Clifton says, you will notice here it says, great sheet knit at the four corners. 
any real alert Bible student will recognize that the four corners spoken of here represent Israel as they camped in the wilderness in the formation of a square. It's not unclean animals in the sheet, but unclean Israelites who were divorced from the covenant. Once divorced, they became not a people and came under the classification with unclean heathen. Then Christ, whom most people called Jesus, but who was Yahweh in the flesh as Yahshua, came to redeem Israel back to himself. Israel, once divorced by Old Testament law, could not remarry Yahweh again only by one provision, that being that either Israel or Yahweh must die to release the married partner from the law. This was the whole purpose of the crucifixion, for once dying, the way was clear for Yahweh to once again marry Israel as he had done before. Therefore, it says further, what God has cleansed, that call not thou common. Yahweh didn't die for pigs. He died to cleanse Israel of their sins. Yahweh didn't die for pigs, but rather for Israelites. Unclean food is as dangerous to eat as it ever was. It is blasphemous to even suggest that Christ died for pigs. The conclusion to the matter of this vision is found in Acts 11, verses 1 and 18, which say the following, And the apostles and brethren that were in Judea heard that the Gentiles, divorced heathen, lost Israelites, had also received the word of God. When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then, has God also to the Gentiles, divorced heathen, lost Israelites, granted repentance unto life? And Clifton interjects at the end, pigs, you've got to be kidding. And many foolish Christians actually believe that God came so that we could eat pig. And they're all getting sick and dying. I saw a... Um, a t-shirt. Melissa and I were walking through Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and we saw a t-shirt that reflects this very thing. The t-shirt was a, a, a bay shirt with a strip of bacon illustrated on the front of it. And it, the caption said, bacon, one more reason why I know Jesus loves me. Denominational Christians, or they really can't be called Christians because they're hardly Christian, the people in these denominational churches, let's put it that way, really believe what Clifton explained here, that Jesus died so that they could eat pigs in direct violation of his food laws. Of course, there are many other things which make us much sicker than that, but that's a glaring example of why our nation is being punished, because it flaunts and blasphemes God on a daily basis. And with this, we will present Bertrand Compré's sermon, 
a reward to the righteous. From the beginning of history, man has been troubled by the injustices of this age. We are reminded every day of the unpleasant fact that the guilty, the wicked, prosper greatly, while the good must work twice as hard to get half as much, really about one-hundredth as much. Maybe in the 60s it was half. In the 21st chapter, Job bitterly asked, Wherefore do the wicked live, become old, yeah, are mighty in power? In the 73rd Psalm, Asaph says, I was envious at the foolish, and when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. In the 37th Psalm, David says, I have seen the wicked in great power and spreading himself like a green bay tree. Accustomed to see things only within the small framework of this short lifetime, men wonder why this can be. The reason, of course, is to teach us the bitter lesson that there cannot be any coexistence between good and evil. One must necessarily destroy the other. We hate, <coughs> excuse me, we hate to believe this, partly because we are too lazy to do the job of putting down evil, and partly because we are by nature too easygoing and too tolerant. We must learn the hard way that tolerance is no virtual virtue unless it is mutual. You can't tolerate a cancer. The Bible makes it clear that these few years of prosperity and power are all the wicked will ever get, and after that, nothing. Psalm 17, verse 14, speaks of men of the world which have their portions in this life, whose belly thou fillest with thy hid treasure. They are full of children and lead the substance, the rest of their substance, to their babes, meaning their children. And Compray then asks, but after that, what? They have nothing. Psalm 49, verses 16 through 20 remind us, Be not thou afraid when one is made rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry away nothing. His glory shall not descend after him. Notice that the psalm says, descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul. And men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understands not is like the beasts that perish. In the judgment, the worst of these go back whence they came, not to Mexico or Africa, and can never come back to trouble you. In your King James Version of the Bible, we read in Psalm 9.17, the wicked shall be turned into hell, 
and all the nations which forget Yahweh. In the Hebrew, that verse reads, the wicked shall be returned into hell. This may give you some idea why they act as they do. Christ had told his adversaries, ye are from beneath, I am from above. This statement which Compare makes here is not the religious statement, which on its surface it may seem to be. History demonstrates that all of the Adamic nations which have forgotten Yahweh God have slid into the practice of mongrelization and disappeared in the mud, which we see is also very threateningly happening today. Once they slide down a slope into miscegenation, Spoiling, spoiling their blood forever, there is no recovery. Compare continues, we must learn that evil is not a thing in itself, something which can be prohibited or regulated by itself. It is the actions of evil people. As long as they do exist, they will be what they are. They will act as their inherent nature urges them to act. You can't get freedom from crime by letting all the habitual criminals run loose. Meanwhile, you futilely tell them, thou shalt not. You can only restrain their conduct by removing them from society. And we see that of non-Adamic people, of non-whites, but we also see it of whites and the corrupted White mind never repents and must remove, be removed from society. That concept is written all throughout the law of God. The idea related by Compare here is that good and evil are genetic traits as well. That is why he says that evil people will be evil as long as they exist. Throughout the Bible, the children of Israel are considered the children of God, and even when they do evil things, they are given opportunity to repent and to be accepted by him. As it says in Proverbs chapter 28, Whoso causeth the righteous to go astray in an evil way, he shall fall himself into his own pit, but the upright shall have good things in possession. So the righteous man shall ultimately endure even when he is led astray by the wicked. Likewise, we read in Proverbs chapter 24, My son, eat thou honey, because it is good, and the honeycomb, which is sweet to thy taste. So shall the knowledge of wisdom be unto thy soul when thou hast found it. Then there shall be a reward, and thy expectation shall not be cut off. Lay not wait, O wicked man, against the dwelling of the righteous. Spoil not his resting place, for a just man falls seven times and rises up again, but the wicked shall fall into mischief. Rejoice not when thine enemy falleth, and let not thine heart be glad when he stumbles, lest Yahweh see it, and it displeases him and he turns away his wrath from him. Fret not thyself because of evil men, 
Neither be envious of the wicked, for there shall be no reward to the evil man. The candle of the wicked shall be put out. Here the analogy is that the wicked shall always fall into mischief, but the righteous man, falling seven times, shall nevertheless rise up again. We may correlate this to the words of Christ, where he warns that if our brother sins against us and repents seventy times seven times, we must yet forgive him. In reference to this, Clifton Emmerheiser had made a critical note where he commended Comparade and said that this was another outstanding presentation given by Bertrand Comparade. Of course, Clifton's note was at the end of this sermon. Then Clifton added that, in relation to this passage here, it should be noted, however, when the scripture speaks of the wicked, it is talking about their evil genetics as well as their evil deeds. Comparé's most outstanding statement in this lesson was, do not confuse this with salvation, which is the unearned gift of Yahweh to all men who claim it by faith in Yahshua, our Savior. Redemption is only for Israel. You can only redeem what you have owned before. The children of Israel may sin, but they have forgiveness in Christ. So the Apostle John said in chapter 2 of his first epistle, My children, I write these things to you in order that you do not do wrong. And if one should do wrong, we have an advocate with the Father, the righteous Yahshua Christ. The wicked have no advocate. Where Christ stands as a propitiation for his people. That's the difference between the wicked Israelite and the wicked of the other races. Continuing with Comparay, so also we must learn that Yahweh is merciful when he takes such people away. Justice for the wicked is the only possible mercy for the righteous. Yahweh makes it clear this removal of the wicked is a part, a necessary part of our reward. For example, Malachi chapter 4 says, The day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the arrogant, yeah, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that comes shall burn them up, saith Yahweh of hosts. And it shall leave them neither root nor branch, but unto you that reverence my name shall the son, S-U-N, but I really believe the English word son bore both meanings for a good reason, shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith Yahweh of hosts. It could not be otherwise. If the wicked were still here, they would steal your reward before you had time to see what it was. So we see that the reward of which Compray speaks is in reference to the kingdom of God when it is finally established on earth. This same day is prophesied in very similar terms in Obadiah, Micah, chapter 4, and Revelation chapters 18 and 19. 
Compare continues. Do you say God sends his reign upon the just and the unjust? That is only during this present age, but even then it has been said, and Compre attempts to make a sort of pun here, the gentle rain, it falls upon the just and the unjust. It falls, but mostly on the just, because the unjust has the just's umbrella. No, it is necessary that the wicked be destroyed. Then we can have our reward. Therefore, be not too bitter about the injustices of today. It shall not profit the wicked very long. And your own troubles, are you not already through the greater part of them? What do we have to look forward to? As always, the answer is in the Bible. Our good deeds will be rewarded. Our troubles compensated. Malachi chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 state, Then they that feared Yahweh spoke often to one another, and Yahweh hearkened and heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him, for them that feared Yahweh, and it thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith Yahweh, in that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them, as a man spareth his own son that serves him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serves as God and him that serveth not. Revelation 11.18 records, And the nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead, that they should be judged, that thou should give reward to thy servants the prophets, and to the saints, and them that fear thy name, small and great, and should thou destroy them which destroy the earth. For that same reason Paul referred to the fornicators of this world. Today, Compare says, the nations are angry, and it seems that the time of the judgment and reward is near at hand. Too bad he didn't live to see today, and never mind the 1960s. Isaiah, he says, gives us rich promises. In chapter 3, he says, Say ye to the righteous that it shall be well with him, for they shall eat the fruit of their doings. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given him. In Isaiah 40, verses 10 to 11, we read, Behold, Yahweh will come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather his lambs with his arm, and carry them in his bosom, and shall gently lead them that are with young. Matthew 16.27 confirms this. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Now, to this point, most of the rewards which Compare has discussed 
especially concerning the removal of the wicked, have been national rewards, meaning that they are shared in common with all of the people of God. But that does not remove the promises of personal rewards for the conduct that each and every one of us have had in our lives. Just as in this life there are both national and personal punishments suffered in the consequences of sin, there are national rewards which all of the people of God shall enjoy, and there are personal rewards which each shall reap according to his works. Therefore, Compare continues by saying, do not confuse this with salvation, which is the unearned gift of Yahweh to all men who claim it by faith in Yahshua, our Savior. Redemption is only for Israel. You can only redeem what you have owned before. Even those who are saved get different rewards as they may have earned. And to a great extent, we we agree with that with that statement, but we have some disagreement. Here, Comparate does well to understand that the salvation promised by Yahweh God to his children cannot be lost, but that those being saved get different rewards as they may have earned. This is exactly what we have always asserted here in our own commentaries, that all of Israel shall be saved, but that some are not going to like it very much. These are those. There are those with great rewards, and there shall be those with no reward, and they shall not like it very much. But we must contend at least a little with this statement that salvation is the unearned gift of Yahweh to all men who claim it by faith in Yahshua, our Savior. That's a sentence we would expect to hear from a Judeo-Christian, that you have to do something to earn your salvation, even if it's only professing an acceptance of Christ. That's still salvation by works. You still have to do something. Something is required of man for man to be saved. And that's just wrong. We believe that Comparé, the way he presented that sentence, may easily be misconstrued to be bearing that notion. Salvation is indeed unearned, and salvation is a gift from Yahweh. But as Paul has said in Romans chapter 4, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. That faith which Paul spoke of was the belief that Abraham had. It wasn't any belief that the future seed might have. According to the King James Version, Paul said in Romans chapter 3 that even the righteousness of God, which is, notice that those words are in italics, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all of them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that redemption certainly is in Christ, 
But it's regardless of any particular Israelite's personal knowledge, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare the righteousness, his righteousness, for the remission of sins that are past. I don't agree with that translation. Through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believes in Jesus. But the phrase which is in verse 22 was added by the translators. We would also assert that Paul's actual statement in verse 22 cannot be understood by itself because it is actually a refinement, a specification of what he said concerning righteousness in verse 21. Here we shall read the Christogenian New Testament translation of this passage and include verse 21. But we shall use the word righteousness rather than justice, as it appears in, in the Christogenian New Testament, so that it may be more easily compared to the King James Version. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of Yahweh is made known, as attested by the law and the prophets. Now Paul's going to refine, he's going to specify, he's going to define the righteousness of Yahweh, which he spoke of in verse 21. But righteousness of Yahweh through the faith of Yahshua Christ. Why? Because the righteousness is not by the law. That's what he's saying throughout that entire chapter. For all of those who are believing, but there is no distinction. For all have done wrong and fall short of the honor of Yahweh, being freely accepted by his favor through the redemption that is at the hands of Christ Yahshua, whom Yahweh set forth as a propitiation through faith in his blood for display of his justice by means of the pretermission, not of past sins, of forthcoming errors by the tolerance of Yahweh for the display of his justice in the present time. For he is just and accepting of him that is from the faith of Yahshua. And where it says forthcoming there, and I should probably explain this better, where it says forthcoming there, it does not mean forthcoming from the time of the cross. It means forthcoming from the time that Yahweh had decided that the children of Israel would need a savior which is from the foundation of the world, from the moment that God, Yahweh our God had conceived of a Messiah, he understood that that Messiah would be necessary for the pretermission of forthcoming errors. It's a complex idea, but it's true nevertheless. Paul used much the same language in his epistle to the Galatians, where he was also demonstrating that the faith in Christ had supplanted the works of the law, which are the sacramental and ceremonial rituals. Many Israelites died, not having ever heard of the works of the law, nor of the faith in Christ. However, they are still included in the promise that all Israel shall be saved. 
Not all of our race has heard the gospel, and most of our race has never, ever, ever heard the true gospel. Because the churches have never taught it. In Paul's time, accepting the gospel gave one an assurance of the faith, especially in the face of those enemies of God who could never accept the gospel. Here Paul is contrasting them to those who accept the gospel of Christ and is encouraging them to look to Christ as the propitiation for their sins rather than to rely on rituals for their justification as the Judeans were both doing and promoting. So, in its context... This statement of Paul's refers only to those who have heard the gospel and accepted it, and those who have heard the gospel and have rejected it, seeking to earn their salvation by relying on their own actions instead and continuing to cling to the law and the rituals. It doesn't apply Paul's words in Romans chapter 3, or the similar language in Galatians, does not apply to anybody who lived throughout all history. That Judeo-Christian idea is simplistic. It takes Paul's words out of context, and it's basically ridiculous. In its context, the statement of Paul's refers only to those who have either heard the gospel and accepted it, hearing that they should be seeking their justification in Christ, or those who have heard the gospel and rejected it, continuing to seek their justification in the rituals of the law. That's the context of Paul's speaking in that manner. Paul's words, whenever he tells his readers that they can only have salvation by believing in Christ Jesus, are always understood always to be understood in this context, that they cannot have salvation by relying on the rituals or the works of their own hands. We do not choose to be in the faith of Christ. We can accept or reject his gospel. It may, be, it may cost us our worldly lives, but in the end, Yahweh knows those who are his. And not one of those whom Christ has been given shall be lost. No man can pluck them from his hand. That's John chapter 10. The faith of Jesus implies that salvation is a result of what Jesus believes and not what man may think. Christians are called to believe in Jesus, that the kingdom of God is manifest in the world, and that they may keep his commandments and be preserved by the punishments to come upon the world. But all of Israel shall nevertheless be saved. I've had people challenging me, and they like to say things like, if all I need to do is be an Israelite and be saved then I need not have a care, and I do not have to do anything else. Others have added that 
I can sin all I want. And I will still be saved. To those people, those sophists, I have always given an answer such as this. If it is your destiny to have no reward in the kingdom of God, you have just explained how you shall get it. To continue with Compare, he says in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 18, 8 through 14, Paul tells us, Every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. I have laid the foundation, and another builds thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereon. For another foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Yahshua. Now if any man can build on this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which is built thereon, he shall receive a reward. Compare should have went one verse further in his quotation, where it says in 1 Corinthians 3.15, if any man's work shall be burned, meaning burned completely, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So if a man has no good works, he shall nevertheless be saved, but he probably won't like it, having no reward. Compare continues. The troubles you are undergoing are part of the fire which is testing your work, even when we had diseases and were smitten with the plagues of Egypt on account of our wicked nation, or if we're smitten by aliens and our children are taken and married off to strangers. The troubles you are undergoing are part of the fire which is testing your work. Making a good sword blade is a terrible process. The metal must be heated red hot, then laid on the anvil and beaten heavily with a hammer to forge it into shape and to make the metal tough and strong. You are also undergoing this forging and tempering process to make you a blade fit for Yahweh's hand to wield. Remember, your destiny is to be a part of his government of the whole universe. So, you must gain the strength of soul to carry it out, fearless, firm in the right, absolutely uncompromising with evil. All the signs of world conditions today indicate that we are getting very near to the time of judgment. This was in the 1960s. It may have been the 1950s. When the wheat will be separated from the tares, the good from the evil, soon we can triumphantly sing those words of the 58th Psalm. 
The righteous shall rejoice when he seeth the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, so that a man shall say, Verily, there is a reward for the righteous. He is a God that judges in the earth. Referring, of course, to Yahweh. I get this constant resistance from other so-called Christians to the idea that all Israel shall be saved. I am only repeating the words of Paul of Tarsus and Isaiah the prophet. Here we shall... Here, I'm sorry, here we have seen that Bertrand Compare also shared in the same idea. The usual challenge to this scriptural fact is for someone to mention an account of one terrible sinner or another, or one horrible criminal or another. I won't mention the names. There is a long list of Israelite criminals for which even a just man could perceive no other end but the lake of fire. But it's not going to happen. We have seen that sickness and death are not necessarily a personal punishment, but that when the nation itself is judged, the righteous are indeed punished along with the wicked. So it is when men fall into sin. In Romans chapter 1, Paul describes the homosexuality, if I have to use that term, the sodomy and the other debauchery, which was occurring in ancient Rome. And he said that God gave them up to their own lusts on account of their sin. When a man commits a horrible act, the community should mourn, as Paul had told the Corinthians, that they should have mourned on account of the fornicator in their midst, while some had inflated themselves instead. When a man commits a horrible act, it is a trial for the entire community, or it is a judgment against the entire community. And while the sinner may be punished, the entire community must repent. They're doing something wrong. They have to find it. We look in the Word of God to find it. Often, people do bad things as a judgment against the community or even against the nation. But we are all sinners, and ultimately, all Israel shall indeed be saved. Just as Paul had said elsewhere, for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. If you do not accept that, you are not found to be arguing with me. I'm a nobody. But you find yourself arguing with the word of God. And for that, you shall be judged. So you better have humility. Thank you for listening. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And good night. I'll be here tomorrow night. I don't know what with yet, but we will be here tomorrow night.